We thank you for visiting Christian Bible Temple and pray the following message speaks to your heart. To prayer this morning and ask the Lord's blessing upon our service. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before your presence this morning thanking you for this day, the beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, for the sun that is shining out there. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the warmth of this place here as we come in to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit will guide this service and lead us into all truth. And I praise you for your immense uh, grace, mercy, and love. Lord, we come before your presence today aware that you are in heaven and we are here on earth. And therefore, Lord, we must bow in respect and humility and adoration before your presence in worship, dear Lord, true worship of the only true God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, our King and our Redeemer. We pray for your blessing upon this service. Be with every person that is still on their way, and I thank you for those that have come already. Pray for your blessing upon this service and the one to follow. And we ask that throughout this day, your wonderful name be, be glorified in our midst. Bless every home, every family, every person that is part of our church. And dear God, we commit all this time into your hands and pray that you speak to our hearts this morning. And give us the wisdom that I need to learn what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis chapter 15. Last week we spoke about uh, Abraham and his encounter with Melchizedek. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of the seed. Okay. So we see, first of all, here as we open the 15th chapter of Genesis, we see the promise of God, again reiterated to Abraham, talking about now his descendants. And we're going to read the first six verses of this chapter, and you need to bear in mind from now that the, the climax of this chapter is verse 6. Okay? So this is what the Word of God says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, 
and he accounted it to him for righteousness. The Lord again manifests himself to Abram and to keep him encouraged. God's word always encourages. His word to man is of the utmost importance and nothing compares with it in all of God's creation. This is why we are told in Psalm 138 and verse 2, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. And notice this, for you, this is David speaking to the Lord, for you have magnified your word above all your name. Now God's name is holy, isn't it? Now, and what does the word of God here tell us? That the Lord has magnified his word above his own name. That's why it's so important to listen to the word of God, to read the word of God, to study the word of God. Because if the Lord God has magnified his own word above his own name, how much more should not we magnify that word? And yet, sadly, most Christians, or so-called Christians, in most churches today, they do not honor the word of God. They don't even read it. And there is a tremendous abysmal ignorance of the word of God. And much less the world. And that's why the things that we're seeing these days are happening. Because people are totally ignorant of what God says. And then they have the goal to ask, ask if there is a God in heaven, why are these things happening? Well, it's exactly because there is a God in heaven that these things are happening. Because you're doing exactly the opposite of what God tells you to do. So here we see that the Lord declares that he is a shield for Abram which speaks of his protection and his reward. This is the first time I am appears in Scripture. This is the first I am of Scripture. Many of the great claims of the Lord Jesus Christ began with I am. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the door. And last of all, he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star in the book of Revelation. In, in fact, his very name is I am that I am. Exodus 3.14. Jesus said to the Jews that Abraham saw him. Tells him that in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. And they recognized this claim as a claim to be God himself and tried to stone him. They knew very well what he was saying. But in truth, Abraham had seen him. And it, it was probably this occasion that we're looking into right now in, in Genesis 15, in which Jesus referred 
when he identified himself to Abraham as the self-existing God. I am the one who was able and willing to supply every need in time and eternity. After the events of the previous chapter that we covered before, the battle with the kings and the encounter with Melchizedek, when Abram was alone, the Lord came to him saying, Do not be afraid. The voice of the Lord had come once before to Adam in chapter 3, verse 10, and it caused him to fear. There is a contrast now between Adam and Abram. Adam was the father of all men. Abram is the father of all men that believe. When we read the New Testament in the book of Romans, in chapter 4 and in verse 11, the Apostle Paul speaks there about Abraham and he says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Adam had a big leaf to cover his nakedness, but Abraham had a shield, and his shield was the Lord. Okay? Adam received a curse. Abraham received a a reward, received a blessing. God came to Abram in a vision, and Abram expressed his fear of not having children. I mean, the Lord had promised him that he was going to be, he was going to have children, and he was going to be the father of a nation. You cannot be the father of a nation if you don't have any offspring. And so Abram is very afraid of that, and that's why the Lord comes to encourage him. He cannot see, Abram cannot see, how he would have any descendants if he and Sarah were to die. Everything would be inherited by a stranger not related to him. In view of such a declaration by Abram, the Lord gives him a more specific promise. His servant Eliezer would not be his heir, but a son of his own would be his heir and would inherit Abram. To dissipate his concern, the Lord takes him outside, shows him the heavens, tells him to count the stars, if it's possible, and says that that is how numerous his descendants would be. Abram never got to see it, but we do see it today. Many times God promises something and maybe we don't see it in our lifetime, but just because we pass on does not mean that God is done. His promises continue. And there not have been very, you know, few. There have been a lot of people who prayed for loved ones, let's say, for example, and they never saw them in their lifetime saved. But after they passed on, God answered their prayers. And their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren came to know the Lord. We are not in control. The Lord is in control. And he does things in his own good time. 
And so here we see that the Lord is re-encouraging Abraham uh, and telling him that his descendants would be uh, many. Okay? Uh, he did not know. He, he only saw Ishmael, which was out of the will of God, and saw Isaac. And then, of course, after Sarah died, he remarried again. And uh, he had many other children with Keturah, his third wife. But those children, we don't even hear about that much, except that they are mentioned in the 25th chapter, because they are not relevant. What is relevant is Isaac, the only one. Okay, And let's say that he only saw Isaac. And probably he saw Jacob, his grandson. But after that, he passed on. And you, we can see today the multitude of descendants that Abram has. Not only the Jewish people, but the Arabs. And spiritually speaking, all of us who have believed. Okay? So here we see <coughs> the text here says then, uh, talks about Abram's faith. Look at verse 6. That's the, I said the climax of this chapter is verse 6. It says, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, it says he believed in the Lord, and that should have been translated better. He believed the Lord. We not only believe in him, we believe him. Okay? And Abram not only believed in the Lord, he believed the Lord. And this is why he is called the patriarch of faith. In the fourth chapter of Romans, again, in verse uh, 3, again, the Apostle Paul speaks about Abram. And he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the, wa the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And the same thing he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Abraham believed two things. First of all, that his descendants would be numerous. He hadn't seen them yet, but he knew they would be numerous. There would be many. Why? Because God promised. And he took God at his word. Okay? And uh, secondly, he believed that the Savior would come from his seed who would bless all the families, <coughs> excuse me, of the earth. In other words, he believed, as we, we could say, practically the gospel. Now, I know that Abraham perhaps never dreamed that the Savior would be Jesus, and he would be from the tribe of Judah, and he would be, uh, you know, uh, a uh, descendant of Jacob through Judah and so on. I mean, uh, Abraham did not have all those details during his lifetime. But he believed generally what the Lord gave him. The revelation that he had at the time, he believed that. Okay? And so we see that he did, be did believe in, in the good news. So in Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 16, we are told again by the Apostle Paul, now to Abraham and his seed, and if you have your Bibles, you notice that the word seed there is capitalized. So that's talking about the Christ. It's talking about the Messiah. 
not about just the descendants of Abraham, all of them, but about that particular descendant to his seed uh, were the promises made. And then Paul clarifies that and he says he does not say unto seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. That's very clear, isn't it? And we believe, of course, that all the Bible is inspired by God, both the Old and the New Testaments. And the Apostle Paul, just like he guided Moses to write the book of Genesis, so he guided the Apostle Paul to write the book of uh, Galatians. And not only there do we see that, but also in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, interesting that the first verse of the New Testament says, book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right from the very start. And by if anybody ever tells you that the word Bible is not in the Bible, they don't know what they're talking about because the first word of the New Testament is Bible. Viblos. Okay, which of course means book. Okay? So, and this is the first mention in the Bible, now in Genesis 15, the first mention of the word believe. Believe. Okay? Abraham be, or Abram believed God. He trusted God. Nowadays, the word believe has become very watered down. But belief, when it, the Bible talks about believe or belief, it's talking about trust. Okay? So we could say that Abraham trusted God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And this is the great principle of true salvation. We are saved by faith. Not by works, which is what makes the difference between true faith and religions. All the religions of the world tell you the same thing. Try, 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 try. The Bible says trust. The religions of the world say do, 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 do. The word of God says believe. Trust is not what you do, it's what he did. And our salvation is not by our works, because our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, we're told in the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 6. So the best we can do is like filthy rags. True faith comes by grace, the grace of God. And we believe what he said and what he has done. And based on that, he saves us. That is true salvation. Not by works, but by faith, because men believe in the word of God, not their own works of righteousness. God credits faith with perfect righteousness, making men fit to have fellowship with a holy God. And this is how God always imputed righteousness, by faith. And this verse of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, is quoted three times in the New Testament. We already read Romans 4.3. It's also quoted in Galatians 3.6. And for the third time, <coughs> it is quoted in James chapter 2, verse 23. Abraham is a type of all who would ever be saved. Grace through faith. 
And this is how salvation is imputed to man. Salvation is not, is not something that you earn. You could not earn it if you try from now to the next couple of billion years. You could never achieve salvation. Salvation is not earned. Salvation is given. It's a gift from God. Always remember that. Okay? Let's go now to verse 7 of chapter 15 of Genesis. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought these to him and cut them in two down in the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now here God declares the purpose why he took Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans. It was to give him the land of Canaan as an inheritance. Abram asks how this would be. And the Lord makes a covenant between himself and Abram through the sacrifice of these animals. Now this is not, these animals that were not, sacrifices were not going on yet under the law of Moses, because the law of Moses was not here yet. But this ceremony confirms God's promise and the Lord provides righteousness and full salvation to him by his gift of grace, but it would be highly costly to God. And these animals symbolize that, okay? That though salvation and grace are free, they don't cost us anything, it costs a big price. It costs somebody else's life. In this case, the animals symbolizing eventually the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future. Okay? And uh, let me say this to you. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. Okay? Salvation is very costly. It cost the father his only son. And so we see here that we must never regard salvation as something very easy or very cheap. We need to value it. It cost him so much. And uh, it costs a lot. The curse of sin can only be removed by sacrifice in the shedding of blood. The Lord tells Abram to bring one each of the five acceptable sacrificial animals that would be acceptable in the future under the law of Moses. What animals are these? First of all, a cow. Then sheep, a goat, a pigeon, and a dove. And if you read the book of Leviticus, and you are thrilled about the book of Leviticus, and you take time to read the book of Leviticus, especially the first seven chapters, we talk about the sacrifices, <coughs> you're going to see that these are the five types of animals that the Lord accepts as uh, clean to be able to offer those sacrifices. And these were to be sacrificed by Abram laid on an, on an altar and placed in two rows, 
half the animal on this side, half on the other side. The cow or the heifer, the, the sheep, and the goat. And notice that the birds were not divided in two. He placed one on each side. Okay? So we see here and that he does that. And this conformed to the custom of the day when a covenant was made between two parties. That was customary of people to do that when they made a covenant, when they made a pact, when they made an agreement. They would take an animal, divide it, and both the parties would walk in the middle of the two halves. Okay? And that was a way of promising, like the day we would sign a paper under the Northern Republic. Do you know why we have Northern Republics? Because man is basically good. Okay? And we can really trust each other. <laughs> and so, but back then, when they made a pact, an agreement between two parties, they would divide an animal, and both parties were to walk through it. Okay? And uh, through the middle of it, as a sign that he, or them both, were bound to the terms of the contract. This implied that if one of them broke the agreement or the covenant, either his animals were subject to death or he could even be subjected to death. Now, if you notice, after Abram made the preparations, nothing happened the rest of the day and the sun went down. The delay possibly symbolized that God's promise, though sure, would take a long time to be accomplished. Abram would have to wait a long time for the seed, and it would take centuries before the seed became a great nation and possessed the promised land, and many centuries more before the ultimate fulfillment took place, with all nations being blessed through the nation of Abram's seed. Israel. Now it tells us here that Abraham had to drive off the birds of prey, the scavengers that came down and tried to devour the carcasses. And this symbolized the attempts of Satan to thwart God's plans and the alertness of the believer in order that the enemy would not succeed. Now, I said to you before that when Abram divided the animals. It was a custom that both parties would walk through. Now we're going to see something very interesting here. Okay, look at the uh, verse 12. We're going to see the prophecy about the Egyptian slavery. It says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Ab upon Abram. And behold, Horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, that is the Lord, right? Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they service I will judge. Afterward, they shall come, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites 
is not yet complete. Now, God knows the end from the beginning, doesn't he? Sometimes we ask ourselves, why does God do something when he knows ahead of time what's going to happen? Well, listen, that's the mystery of God. We have to trust him, okay? Um, Here we see that at sundown, Abram was overcome by the fear of a deep darkness as a premonition regarding the future of his descendants. The Lord confirms that they would dwell in a foreign land and be slaves there, serving that nation for 400 years. Now, he didn't tell them what nation, but we know that that nation is Egypt. Okay? And he also promises that he would punish that nation for their abuse of Abram's children, that he would die in peace also after living a long life, and that his descendants would return to the land at the determined time. Now, the first thing that we notice here is the resurrection is implied because it says here, you shall go to your fathers. Now, what does that mean? He he would be buried with his uh, relatives in the grave? No, because the relatives were all left behind in Ur of the Chaldeans. What he's talking about here is that he would go to the fathers. In other words, he's he's implying that there is life after death. Okay? When the Bible uses that term, will go to his fathers, means there is life after death. And also here we see (coughs) that um, the fourth generation would come back to the land. Now, back then a generation was 100 years. So 100 times 4 is how many? 400. And so 430 years later, the generation, the fourth generation came back to possess the land under, uh, well, under Joshua, really, but with Moses, right? And so we see here that he also would live a long life. Abraham died at the age of 175. Do you think that's a long time? That's relative. According to Adam, we're short. Because Adam died at the age of 930. Okay? But still, it's a long life. I don't know too many people these days that live 175 years. Now, we know that all this occurred (coughs) in the book of Exodus. (coughs) Excuse me. God's people were oppressed after the death of Joseph. Now, it is not known exactly for how long Jacob went down to Egypt in 1879 B.C. And the Exodus took place exactly at 1449 B.C., exactly 430 years. Egypt was punished by all the plagues, and we see how severely it was, and we see it as well in the Exodus account. But Israel would be recompensed, recompensed for their sufferings. And God assures Abraham that he would not see those events and states when the end of the captivity would be. Another reason for the waiting was that the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. Who was the Amorite? The Amorite was the most numerous tribe of the uh, Canaanites. So they represent all the Canaanites. So what would God do in his infinite mercy? 
he would delay judgment on the Amorites for 400 years, still giving them an opportunity to repent. Okay? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now we see here the promise of the Lord in verse 17, uh, the, the, the land. And it says here, and it came to pass in verse 17, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, <coughs> the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. We see here that when it was dark, a smoking oven and a burning torch passed between the pieces. Remember that I told you that when they made a covenant back then, both parties walked through the middle of the pieces? Remember that? Look what happens here. Who's walking between the two pieces of the animals? Who's walking in the midst of the animals? Not Abram. God. What does that tell us? Talks to us about his grace. We see here the Lord <coughs> here is doing something amazing. Only he passed through, not Abram. This denotes an unconditional promise on God's part, not dependent on Abram fulfilling his part of the contract. Grace. In the law of Moses, was conditional. God said through Moses, if you want to live, do these things. That was the condition. With Abram, it wasn't like that. It was an unconditional covenant. It depended on God only fulfilling his promise, not on Abram. Salvation depends on God, not on us. Religions will make you think that salvation depends on what you do. God teaches us in his word that salvation depends on what he did. So here we see the Lord fulfilling his part. And he doesn't tell Abraham to do the same thing. He doesn't say to him, you too walk through. No. Only God walks through as part of the covenant, and his promise is his, the promise is his, and is not dependent on Abraham fulfilling his part of the contract. It was all of God, none of Abraham, in answer to Abraham's faith. It is all by the grace of God, not the works of man. For God to keep his covenant, there must first be suffering with glory to follow. And that was the furnace and the lamp representing that. The promise of God to Abram develops a little further 
for we see details we have not seen up to now. The Lord enumerates the nations he would displace from the land, that he would give the land to Abram's descendants and reveals the limits of the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Now, I always believe that the river of Egypt was referring to the the Wadi, a small river from the Sinai Peninsula. But I was reading a commentary yesterday, and a great commentator, Dr. Leupold, who's an authority on the book of Genesis, says God would not have meant a small brook. But he's talking about the Nile. So from the Nile to the Euphrates River. Today we would say from Egypt to Iraq. Now that's not to say exactly that that's where they would all be, but that would be the sphere of activity of the people of Israel. Now we know, okay, that uh, the land then occupied by the Canaanites represented by the 10 tribes that they were just named here, the 10 nations, And to this date, this promise has not been fulfilled in its entirety for the territory of Israel never reached the Euphrates, not even under the reign of Solomon. And this is therefore a further promise waiting to be fulfilled. And you know what? Just like God fulfilled all the promises in the past, He will fulfill all the promises in the future. So all those Amorites, Parasites, Kenites, Termites, who are trying to go back into the land that doesn't belong to them, are not going to succeed. Because that land God already promised to Abraham Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not Abraham, Ishmael, and descendants. Sorry, Arabs, the land belongs to the Jewish people. Why? Because the land is God's, and God gave it to whomever he wanted to give it. Am I going to come to your house and tell you what to do with your house? And therefore, I think that any government, not to mention names, but any government that sticks their nose in somebody and another government's affairs is none of their business. And I don't care how big the government is, how big the country is. Okay? Another country does not decide what another country needs to do. As a matter of fact, President Theodore Roosevelt said it very clearly. Teddy Roosevelt, he was a dynamite. He was a hurricane. He said, every big nation must respect the rights of smaller nations. And President Ronald Reagan, when Russia, the Soviet Union, was threatening Finland, they have borders, President Reagan said it very clearly also. He said, any nation that does not respect the rights of its own citizens will not respect 
the rights of another nation's citizens. And we've come to a point where we have a government that does not respect the rights of its own citizens. And they're trying to solve the problems of other countries. Let me say this to you. As a citizen of the United States, I resent that. And I pray for the day when the Lord will give us leaders that are leaders indeed who care for the country and not for themselves. And we as Christians can make a difference. Amen? As a matter of fact, God expects us to make a difference. Because we need to act according to principles, not to what the media tells us. So let us learn the lesson from here. Salvation is by God's grace, not by works. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And this covenant, the reiteration of the covenant between God and Abram proves that because that covenant was made unilaterally by God, not by God and Abram, but by God alone. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross alone. And it's only in him that we have salvation. Not in him and what we do. In him, period. Amen? I thank God for the Bible. It's a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And the entrance of thy word gives light. So you want to be illumined in your life? Open the Bible. Open the Bible. I told you this before. Somebody asked Spurgeon, the great preacher, pastor of the London Tabernacle. He said, how do I know that the Bible is the word of God? And he who was quick like that, he said to him, the same way you know that a lion is a lion. Just open the cage. So you want to know if the Bible is the Bible, the word of God? Just open it and let the Bible speak for itself. And you're going to find out it is the word of God. And you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ said that in a different way. John 7, 17. He said, if anyone, any man is willing to do the will of God, he shall know whether this doctrine is from God or whether I speak for myself. How do I know, Pastor Alex, that you're, what you're preaching is true? Just open the cage. You'll find out. And if you can find anything that I preach to you from the Bible that is not right, come and tell me. I'll eat the page. But I don't think, don't waste time on that. Amen? Let us love the Lord and his word. 
and let us apply it in our lives, especially these days. We're living in dark, dark times. Let us pray that the Lord will keep us faithful as lights shining in the midst of darkness, this wicked and perverse generation in which we live. Father in heaven, we come before your presence this morning once again thanking you, thanking you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for listening to this message and pray that the word of God spoke to your heart. To listen to previous sermons, please visit us at www.cbttbc.com or anchor.fm forward slash cbt hyphen sermons.